0: Well, I bring you greetings from President Timothy Tennant, who uh, wanted me to send you greetings and his love, and he's on a very well-deserved sabbatical, and yet he was texting me this morning wanting me to greet all of you. As we conclude our centennial celebrations, our world has changed dramatically over the last hundred years. Yet in other ways, the world has not changed so much. In 1923, the world's population reached 2.2 billion. It has nearly quadrupled since then. Vice President Calvin Coolidge was sworn into president after the the death of President Harding. The last U.S. troops left Germany after World War I. Roy and Walt Disney founded something called the Walt Disney Company. Tokyo and Yokohama earthquakes killed 100,000 people. Clarence Birdseye invented frozen foods, changing the way that we eat. The biggest hit song of 1923, Billy Jones, Yes, We Have No Bananas. (laughs) I had to Google that one. Edwin Hubble proved that there are galaxies outside of our own. In 1923, more U.S. citizens lived in cities than farms for the very first time. The first transcontinental flight took off from New York to San Diego, and Asbury Theological Seminary was founded with the motto, the whole Bible for the whole world. The challenges that we face today are eerily similar and yet very distinct. If Asbury Seminary was birthed out of a context riddled with wars, earthquakes, scientific discoveries, and population growth, we continue to see all of these but with new iterations. If I were merely to chronicle very briefly what we have witnessed just in the last few years in the U.S. and around the world, it's daunting enough to stagger the most resolute. We've experienced a global pandemic that has killed and divided, a mental health crisis of proportions we struggle to comprehend, let alone treat, a polarized political season that seems to be with us to stay, ethnic and racial animosity dividing neighbors and churches alike, coups, wars, new political alliances, forced migration around the world with ensuing reactions of protectionism, and multiculturalism, forces of globalization making the world larger and smaller, more integrated while more divisive, massive secularization at work combined with different forms of emergent resacralization. Meanwhile, according to research companies of Barna and Pew, trust in authority figures and institutions is at abysmal levels. And all of this is being played out 24-7 on social media streams, filling and feeding the lives of people with a deep sense of fracture, antagonism, and despair. We face an enormous cultural inflection point. Pundits have labeled our season by different names, whether bowling alone, moralistic therapeutic deism, technical technological optimism and literary despair, or anxious tribalism. Furthermore, the challenge, of course, is not just outside of the church, but it's within her. It's not a problem that can be solved by tweets, or bravado, by superheroes of a glamorous form of Christianity romantically remembered, or by retreating into cultural grottoes where we all agree and look alike. Our world itself posits education as a form of secular eschatology, whether status-related, trying to become who more than who we are, technologically attempting to extend humanity outside of its created finitude, or economic, living the good life of material opulence. In some sense, it's hard for theological education to compete on these terms, and yet, And yet, ours is an eschatological calling that none of these secular eschatologies can rival. In and through the risen Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God offers us, the people of God, abundant resources to be communities of mental health, racial and ethnic reconciliation, life-giving and sacrificial leadership. Moral maturity, relational integrity, truth, spiritual sensitivity and revival, apostolic presence and public witness, cultural transformation, hope, joy, peace, right? I can go on and on and on. Hence the cultural challenges we face offer us a missiological calling that requires more and more and more of the gospel of Jesus Christ, taking us deeper into the fullness of Jesus Christ sent by the Father and empowered and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Into more and more and more of the church, especially seen in the dazzling and magnificent beauty of our scholars in Costa Rica and our sister from Kenya and all around the world and within more and more and more of the world, which is always God's world, now and for all eternity. The need for theological education is as great as it's ever been. We've spent the last year reflecting upon the past with praise to God's faithfulness as we look ahead to the next hundred years or until Christ returns. We need to be a community that train and send men and women out with this eschatological hope as servants for church and society. We need to be a community that prays theology for our world. Theology, quite literally, is speech about God, where the people of God embody the holy love of God and the reconciliation of Jesus Christ is revealed in scripture by the Spirit into all facets of life. What we do in our classrooms is theology of the most importance. And as I've shared, the need for theological education is as great as it's ever been. We carry the mind of Christ into a world that is rebellious and without hope. But of course, everything that we do in a community such as this needs to be informed by theology, shaping who we are as a people. Anselm famously defines theology as faith-seeking understanding, while the African theologian Orabator builds upon this to say that theology is faith-seeking understanding, love, hope, prayer, praise, and worship. All the best theology is prayed theology. Prayed theology combines the head and combines the heart. Prayed theology is not passive, but it's active. It sends and mobilizes us into the world. I first learned to pray theology 35 years ago. Now, I wouldn't have called it praying theology at that time, but I was a senior at Wheaton College and I started the practice of spiritual journaling. Writing out prayers in response to reading God's word, this is a practice I've continued to this very day. God has used many prayers in scripture to shape who I am, including Genesis 12 that I'll return to later in the sermon, several from Jeremiah, Psalms, Proverbs, Romans 12, Ephesians 2 and 3, and many, many others. But perhaps the most significant of all, especially in recent years, has been what we call the Lord's Prayer. Let me briefly walk us through the Lord's Prayer to see how the prayer that Jesus teaches us helps us do theology in a way that is responsive to God and positioned for this world. Now there's a deep economy, an underlying economy behind this prayer, and I'm not unpacking all of it. We certainly see in the reading of the word we we hear silence before God. We hear intimacy before, behind, with, before God, but the economy of this prayer is that we respond to God in worship. We see the world through the lenses of Christ's kingship. We open our hands and receive generously, abundantly from God, and thus we give generously and abundantly to others. And then we break out into doxology doxology that can change the world. The prayer begins, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The prayer begins on bended knees before our exalted Father. Everything that we do at Asbury Seminary is before God. Karl Barth says the first and basic act of theological work is prayer. Helmut Thieleke cautions us against speaking of God in the third person. He writes, a a theological thought can breathe only in the atmosphere of dialogue with God. Essentially, theological method is characterized by the fact that it takes into account that God has spoken and that now what God has spoken is to be understood and answered. You see, there's great danger, and even in a theological institution, in speaking about God, essentially placing him in a petri dish as something to be analyzed, pulled apart into discrete pieces, probed, and spoken about with objective, hubris-filled prose. Bonhoeffer even goes so far to argue that when sin arises in the Garden of Eden, it does so from the very first theological conversation about God rather than with God where he is referred to casually in the third person. We sometimes think that secularity is the greatest threat to our faith, but religiosity poses its own threat. Did God really say, Satan asks, You see, if we talk about God rather than with him, we can make him whatever we want. We can shape him into something we can control or claim his status for ourselves or fit him around our affections or ambitions or even use him to justify our own secular eschatologies. However, when we begin theology with the words, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, it reshapes everything. Our speech, our actions, the motives of our heart, as well as it spills into the ways that we treat others, committee meetings, emails we write, the ways we laugh and play, how we grieve, how we lead, and how we interact in the world around us. We are always before God. One can't speak to God without unbended knee. Humility is the necessary soil for theological education and especially we need this in today's world. There's no room for chest thumping, intellectual hubris, divas, using theology to increase our own status. We turn our eyes upon God. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The focus continues upon God, but we look at the world through God. If humility is the soil of theological education, theology begins to sprout as we receive, as we receive the fullness of the kingdom of God into the everydayness of life. Here we discover real eschatology, the kind that our world longs for, Heaven is not some ethereal realm far away, where God, but where God reigns today and we plead for his reign in all parts of our humanity, our families, our institution, and in the world. It's easy, and I'm guilty of this, of allowing our prayers to be consumed by self, family, or other parochial concerns, and we should never neglect these. And yet God throws open a vision for us where he is seated on his throne and the whole world is before us. Theology in response to God is livable theology. It's for such reasons scholars use the language of wisdom or drama or practices to describe theology. Or as D- Derek Kidner says, it's godliness and working clothes. We teach a wide variety of theological subjects at Asbury, not only biblical and doctrinal, but where we move with theology into humanity, culture, family systems, political systems, economics, and other parts of our world, and this is good and right as it arises out of the Lord's Prayer. Praying theology is not an escape from this world, but is sending us into the fullness of this world, which is first and foremost God's world. And of course, the problems of our world are far too great to not pray them, and to not pray them theologically. Give us our day, give us this day, today, our daily bread. Having placed everything under God's reign, the world is now free and good to be enjoyed in its fullness as from God's hand. The Lord's Prayer now shifts from you language to us language, our daily bread. Daily bread is sustenance, it's provision, it's fruitfulness of creation. It's natural needs satisfied in good ways and natural gifts fruitfully fruitfully employed by the hand of God the Father. Daily bread is the realization of eschatological realities in the here and now. But one can't pray for daily bread for oneself without being sent into the lives of others for their daily needs. The us language is a collective us, and especially for people who are trapped in poverty, who have the greatest needs. God's economy is about receiving from him, and giving graciously and generously to others. Gratitude helps us receive, gratitude helps us give. Hence, our theology needs to take up and address issues of poverty and agriculture, health and depression and racial divide and a host of other issues, both theoretically and practically. It sends us out into the streets. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. At the very epicenter of the prayer, if you will, we find Forgiveness. We receive forgiveness and we give forgiveness. And the order of these is significant. A person who has received abundant grace from God is a person who gives abundant grace to others. And we need to be trained in these things. God's extravagant grace releases us to be his agents of healing and love and forgiveness in this world. Some of you are entering into a theological discipline of counseling that involves being immersed in the pain, anger, abuse, and even trauma of others. Yours is a sacred calling that will involve daily praying this part of the Lord's Prayer. But always remember, healers need healing. Leaders, if they are going to lead well, must receive God's mercy if they are going to give to others. Pastors need grace if they are going to be agents of grace in this world. Receiving is the proper condition for giving. And here's where we see God's economy at its clearest, for here we see the cross of Jesus Christ. Matthew underscores this because later he comes back in verses 14 and 15. He says, and he, he presses the point, Jesus is pressing the point with us, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive us, others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Only people who of grace know how to accept grace. Hannah Arendt is one of my favorite scholars on the subject of power. She says that violence is not power, violence is actually anti-power. Real power, Arendt says, is where people make promises to each other, they keep promises with each other, and they forgive each other. That changes how we think about power. Praying theology walks the pathway of the cross and the resurrection with others within the broken, agonizing, painful world around us. Forgiveness needs to be the defining characteristic of Asbury Theological Seminary, for this is praying theology at its finest. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I've prayed these words more in the last couple years than I've ever prayed them in my life. And it's not necessarily because the world is getting more evil, but I've come to realize and see the evil in the world more clearly. Jesus acknowledges the presence of evil. Evil is not generic evil, it's personal. It's agental. It stalks, it conspires, it desires to do wrong. Wrong to people, wrong to families, wrong to systems wrong to institutions. Our world isn't just broken nor complex. Wickedness abounds and John Wesley speaks of complicated wickedness to capture the essence of what we experience daily. We can't overly spiritualize it. We can't play around with evil. We also can't compartmentalize it as somehow in certain locations and not in others. Deliver us from evil points us back to where we began in this prayer with God exalted, which is the only answer for evil in this world. There's that beautiful little phrase in the hymn, This is My Father's World, that says, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We are being sent out into the world, a world that seems oh so evil, but where Christ is seated on the throne. Some late manuscripts, of course, include this doxology, which we include in our liturgy, for yours is the kingdom, power and glory forever, amen. Having prayed theology, we burst out into doxology. It's easy for us to despair, to give up hope, to blame and ridicule others, or to retreat safely into our own little worlds, but praying theology is eschatological We see the world as it truly is, his kingdom, his power, his glory, forever and ever and ever, amen. And we, the people of God, are sent out to be agents, to learn, to think Christ's thoughts after him, to have the mind of Jesus Christ, and to be sent out into this world. All the best theology is prayed theology for the world. This is not just a task for a few elite, but for our entire community who is called by the Trinity. Praying theology is not anti-academic, it's the best kind of scholarship, which takes us deeper into the mind of Jesus Christ, and thus sent out as witnesses into this world. It requires rigorous attention in classrooms, but also needs to spill over into other areas such as how we lead, how we treat others, what makes us laugh, and how we engage public life. Let me conclude with a story from my own life of how I have been shaped by praying theology. My PhD journey was perhaps different than others. I was working as a provost and professor at a theological institution in East Africa while researching and writing my dissertation. It was an intense time with our institution struggling dramatically economically while facing dire political situations such as a failed government election and ensuing near civil war. I would wake up every morning at 4 a.m. I would write my dissertation until 8 a.m. I would work a full day, come home, spend time with my family, and then collapse into bed only to begin the activity the same the next day. This went on for four years, but the Lord taught me a simple prayer during those years. Drawn from Genesis 12, I would pray every morning, Lord, if you would be so gracious as to bless me with this education, I will spend the rest of my life using that education to bless others and especially the nations. Any prayer, of course, is powerful when you pray it once, but when you pray a prayer over and over again over years, it changes you. It also changes how you think about education, not as a status, not as a title, but as a blessing for the nations. If one little prayer can change one little person and transform how they think about education, what can the prayers of an entire community accomplish. One of the greatest tests of our theology, whether explicit or implicit, is how we pray it. This is a test for our classrooms, our papers, our exams, but also how we interact with others in the community and in our world. The needs of the world are great A 100 years later. Yet no secular eschatology will rival Jesus Christ seated on the throne. What we are doing at Asbury Seminary is of the greatest importance. We are preparing theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled women and men to evangelize and spread scripture holiness throughout the world through the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the glory of God the Father. And oh, our world desperately needs this. The Lord's Prayer informs how we do this. This is the future of Asbury Theological Seminary, a community praying theology for our world.